podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. Show us the power of 1980s pop culture. Welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. Awesome. I practice. <laughs> my name is Will, and joining me as always are my co-hosts and friends, Ray and Kat. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, guys. That was an experiment to see how it would work out if I just tossed it out. I was watching Ray pointing around. I, I didn't just, know if it was for me. Or, yeah. Nah, that's me <laughs> dancing during the theme song. Oh, oh, oh. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like, uh, what's his name from Warner Brothers? Sam, uh, Yosemite, Yosemite Sam, Sam, is that you're talking like, about? Oh, yes. I'm rooting, tooting, that's, yeah. how, that's how Ray dances. That sounds like Ray, too. <laughs> <And> it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like Ray. <laughs> On today's show, we're going to be discussing the unifying power of media in the 1980s, and a little bit later, we're going to be discussing some of the collateral effects you know, that uh, of that, because you know, there was not necessarily all good that came of that, with our guest, author and journalist, David Sirota. And if that name sounds familiar, should we tease why, Ray? Hmm. No. You might have seen that character on TV. A character version of him. No, 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 no teasing. All right. Okay. Make him stick around. Hey, before we move on with the show, it is time for our segment. Thank you for your cooperation. Just a couple of weeks ago, we got a review on Apple Podcasts from someone calling themselves Holly Meriday. Probably their real name. <laughs> Holly Meriday writes, fun and fascinating. Gives us five stars and writes, I've been listening to the idiots. That was our old name, folks. Okay. Mm. Now, now we're, that, that's when we were still the idiots. I've been listening for about a month or so. First listened to the 80s cartoon episode with John from Gen X Grown Up. And I've really been enjoying the show. The recent interview with Chris Butler about 1980s music is definitely a favorite. Thanks, Holly. Very nice. Nice. If you have anything good to say about anything good to say about us, please also review us or shoot us a note or comment. Uh, you can do so. There's a little form to fill out on our website, 1980snow.com. I did one of those when I was a listener. You did? Oh, yeah, you yeah. did. Okay, <laughs> one final note. I want to tease an upcoming guest on the show. And I'm going to give you guys an audio clue and see if you can figure out who it is, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, here's your clue. That's it? Yep. That's it! That's right. <laughs> Hang on. Let me get my other thing down. That's right. <laughs> Just a few weeks from now, we'll be speaking with, and I'm nice. going to bleep out his name when the show airs so people don't know who it is. They're just going to uh, hear us talk about it. If you give them the clue, they're going to know. If they get it, they get it. If they don't get it, they don't get it. Okay. <laughs> hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. In 1980s news this week, hey, just a few weeks ago, we learned that Cobra Kai season four wrapped. Kat, are you a fan of Cobra Kai? I have to tell you something. Oh, no. I am. Oh! And as of today. Oh. <laughs> in fact, I almost didn't show up for this recording. Oh. Because I didn't wow. want to stop watching. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> Very good. So I can't imagine you're too far, but you're obviously on season one. Two. Two episodes in. Oh, I think you say you're on season two. I'm like, you weren't doing anything else today. <laughs> I was going to say, she watches the show like I do. Meaning that you would have watched the whole season in a day. Yeah, I watched the mm-hmm. entire season and the day it comes out. So. Mm-hmm. I, right on. Right. I need another pandemic to do that. Yeah. Oh, no, this is not, Ray did this before the pandemic, during his yeah, full-time job as a podcaster. Yeah. So we have just learned that, so you've got a little ways to go, Cap, but season four has wrapped and you'll, you know, you'll be excited about this, but unfortunately, we're going to get to a little spoiler territory here in a moment. But okay. uh, William Zapka, who we know as Billy Zapka, before he got mm-hmm. all serious, I guess. <laughs> when the season wrapped, he tweeted out a photo of himself wearing a face mask on the set while practicing karate moves. And he wrote, after three and a half months of production, I'm proud to say Cobra Kai season four is officially wrapped. Martin Cove, mm-hmm. likewise, uh, wrote a lengthy Instagram post about uh, the journey of making the series amid the pandemic, writing, what a season and what a year, a crew that is fearless and shows no mercy. Through COVID, we pushed on, we striked first. And with a cast that strikes hard. We don't have a release date for Cobra Kai season four yet. Of course, you can watch the first three seasons on Netflix. As I am doing. But, and Kat, just turn off your, take your headphones off. <laughs> don't listen to the show this week. We're going to talk about a spoiler for season four. And if anybody else doesn't want to know. It's okay. I won't listen. remember what you no. say by the okay. time. Okay, ah. very good. 
After months of denying it and answering it in clever ways, uh, the producers, that is, Netflix confirmed uh, just a week or so ago that Terry Silver, the character Terry Silver, you know, the uh, sleazeball from uh, Karate Kid 3, played by Thomas Ian Griffith, will be making an appearance in Cobra Kai Season 4. Griffith told Entertainment Weekly that, quote, I never imagined I'd be stepping back into this role, but what an incredible opportunity to bring Terry Silver full circle. We've been thinking Terry Silver's been coming back for a while, but... Absolutely. When yep. season when season three ended, we knew yep. this was coming. Yep. The ponytail is back. <laughs> <laughs> he owned the company that that sponsored uh, right. uh, Dynatech. What? They're the sponsor for the All Valley <laughs> Tournament from Karate Kid. Uh, oh, in, in the Karate Kid three. three that he's in. Yeah. Okay. In yeah. Yeah. Because he's 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 that rich son of a bitch. Right. Who helps Ooh. crease? Yeah. It, it's it's kind of <laughs> it's definitely among the more ridiculous of the Karate Kids. <laughs> Okay. But um, I didn't that, see that, that one. Yeah, that, that one's fun. And, and Distracted Nerd did a great summary on it. It's hilarious. I'll send you the link for it, Kat. You may not okay. even have to watch it. You just watch this. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I thought what I thought you were going to say, Ray, is that Terry Silver also staked, you know, Crease when he started Cobra Kai. He's he funded him. He's the guy who helped him get that business started. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like Johnny and uh, Daniel are aligning. Oh, sorry, Kat. These are so much spoilers <gasps> for you. They are definitely not aligned right oh, now. Yeah, and it not takes them a while to get there. And again, it seems like season four they're going to be together to to Ooh. fight to. Oh, this is this is all spoilers for you. I'm, God, so, I'm so glad sorry. to hear it. No, it's totally cool. I'm you fine. don't even know that Crease is in it. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying it's, to hold back on. It's uh, cool. On no, Johnny's <laughs> new dojo name too. I'm trying not to uh, say yeah. it. Hmm, I'm trying to because it's what it awesome. Is. I remember the uh, mascot say what you or will. animal, but what's the name of the? <laughs> Hmm. Screaming uh, eagles or something like that? Eagle Claw. Eagle Claw? Okay, I don't remember. Isn't that what it is? Eagle Claw? I remember it's an eagle, but yeah, I don't remember. Hmm. <laughs> Pretty sure it's Eagle Claw. It's Cobra Kai. It's Eagle Claw. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, so it seems like Johnny and Daniel are teaming up mm-hmm. against Crease, uh, And so, hey, Crease might need an ally. And so at the very end of uh, season three, he makes a phone call to someone while looking at a photo of him as a young man with a young Terry Silver. And we don't find out that that's Terry Silver in a series of flashbacks. I think until like the last episode, they show flashbacks yeah. of them being in Vietnam together. And we learned that uh, Terry Silver saved Kreese's life, I think. No, I, I, no, Kreese saved his life. That's that's why the rich guy right. funded Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. Right. Kind of owes him now. Right. Do we know when season four is coming out? We have no idea. Nope. Well, hopefully I'll be all caught up. But uh, at the yep. same time, you know what I did find out that I thought was absolutely interesting. Yeah, I mean this is going sideways, but okay. Thomas Ian Griffith, yep. was in the is in uh, Call the Conqueror. Oh gosh, I don't remember with that. Kevin at all. Sorbo and Tia Carrera. Yeah, that was supposed to be Conan the Conqueror, but Arnold wouldn't come back. Oh. And Kevin Sorbo refused to take over the role, so they changed the name. Oh, wow. That really was a tangent. <laughs> okay. Hey, in other 1980s news, according to Autoblog, which I, I, a publication I've never heard of until this moment, the Back to the Future DeLorean will, will join the National Historic Vehicle Register. And, and that's also something I didn't know existed. But it does. Uh, the Haggerty Drivers Foundation announced that the latest car to join its National Historic Vehicle Register, which is a li- list of historically significant uh, automobiles. Mm. Bandits Trans Am. Mm. <laughs> are you listing ones that should be in it? No, the ones that are in it, I'm guessing. Generally. Oh, so you're going to oh, guess. You're guessing. Yeah. <laughs> Boss Hogs Caddy. Yeah. Oh. The A-Team Van. Mm. Ecto-1. Yeah. Are, are these on are there? Are there real cars in it, or are they all just movie cars? That's the weird thing about it. So it seems like the list is all real cars, but significant for some reason or another. Now, among the cars mm. you'd, that we would be recognizable to us as fans of pop culture, of course, are the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and also Steve McQueen's uh, Bullet uh, Mustang, mm. or a Mustang mm. from Bullet. The other ones, No. I, I, you know, not, there are other significance. First car to be in a NASCAR or something like that. So okay. the, the particular car that's being, uh, you know, uh, I guess admitted is the DeLorean that was used in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it was, uh, it was a, a car that was restored in, in 2012, uh, which was done by a team of fans led by uh, Bob Gale, who wrote the film, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the car from the first film. So it doesn't have the Mr. Fusion fuel tank where you can stick a bunch of garbage in there. Um, it doesn't have the white walls or the 
any of the other mods that happen in the second or third film. They're loaning, Universal owns the car, so they're loaning it out to the museum to have it on display in Los Angeles, but it's also going to be on display in the National Mall in Washington, D.C. this September as a part of the uh, this, regist- this National uh, Registers, uh, you know, program. But it's right, not right. it's not a bunch of, bunch of fictional cars. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not what you'd think. It's a little confusing, but it's not what you'd think. <laughs> so you wouldn't be that excited to go see it? I'm going to pass. <laughs> not making the trip. If they don't have all these cars that I like in there, then yeah. I'm, I'm not interested. I'd like to see the bullet Mustang, but yeah, other than that, that's a short, that's a short trip through. I think there's 20, say, 29 cars. I bet we can find a place with the bullet car somewhere closer. Yeah. There's some guy with a mullet driving that thing around right now. Yeah. There's tons of them in our area. You go to the, uh, what's that Quaker steak and lube on a Saturday oh, yeah. afternoon. Yeah. The car show. Oh, yeah. definitely. Impromptu car shows. All right, whatever. And yeah, I thought, well, I guess I brought it up because like you, Ray, I thought it was going to be, when I heard that the, the Back to the Future hero car was being admitted, I thought it was going to be yeah. a bunch of cool fictional cars. But um, again, and it's weird to say because it's a fictional car, but these are real cars that were used in a work of fiction, I guess. Right. right. Anyway, okay, in other 1980s news. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Dungeons and Dragons film. And actually we talked about it for a couple of weeks in a row, I think. At that time, I said we hadn't heard anything about the TV show that we was first teased in January of this year. Well, according to Polygon, Polygon reports that Dungeons & Dragons publisher, Wizards of the Coast, kicked off a summer-long celebration of all things... Ray, you got to help me here. Dritzt. Uh, yes, the name is Drist Duerden. Drist, okay. Uh, on May 20th, including among this summer celebration was a preview of a D&D-themed magic cards for Magic the Gathering. But they also took an opportunity to promote the upcoming movie, which we've talked about a number of times, and tease the, an in-development live-action TV show, which I said sort of fell off the radar. We don't mm-hmm. know a whole lot about it, um, other than that Derek Kolstad, who created the John Wick franchise, is, is, is attached to the film, or, or the TV show, rather. But the fact that Wizards of the Coast mentioned the f- TV show when they're talking about this summer of Drist, led to confusion and questions. So Polygon reached out to Wizards to ask them, is Drist going to be in the film or the TV show or both? And uh, Wizards re- replied in an email saying, quote, the D&D movie is not focused on Drist, but there is a TV show in development that might be. All right, all right. Here, here's, the, <laughs> here's what I know about this, because yep. as you know, I'm a big D&D nerd. Yes. Love this stuff. <laughs> Uh, there's a D&D game coming out called yep. Dark Alliance. Sure. And this is set in the Icewind Dale region, which is like a, it's in the human world. It's uh, like a cold, frosty area with snow and stuff. And some people play tested it already. And it's pretty much going to follow along uh, the book, The Crystal Shard, which is the first appearance of Drist. Right. So what we're guessing is the live action is going to be set in that area and it's going to have the 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 big four characters from the first book as the main characters just like they are in the game so that's going to get them but well that would get them out of the problem of doing the underdark which is where all the dark elves come from Hmm. the drow Mm -hmm. which is what drist is he's a basically a dark elf Mm -hmm. and if they do the underground they're gonna have to use a lot of special effects Yep. So the theory is, is that they're going to do the above ground stuff, save some money, because you can film in the snow for free. Mm. Like in Cleveland, it snows here in nine, nine months out of the year. Ooh, film here. Oh, yeah. No. But uh, right now, that's the theory is, is they're going to be in the Icewind Dale region. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to this. Yep. So, so you know, the character, it's uh, Drist, as Ray mentioned, comes originally from this book, The Crystal Shrug by R.A. Salvatore. Yes. Did, you read the, did you read the early novels? <laughs> I've read all of them. There's like 20 books, 25 books or something. 30 novels. Yeah, there's 30 yeah. novels. I noticed yeah. in the, in, I was reading your guys' bios, you know, like mm-hmm. for amusement recently. <laughs> I did notice that author's name, R.A. Mm-hmm. Salvatore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, yeah. That is my, my favorite author. Wow. So yeah, yes, he was featured, that character was featured in more than 30 novels and several video games. Uh, and also appeared in the, and that's, and that's tied directly to the 1980s uh, cap because those books came out and started in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. He was also featured in at least one book for advanced D and D, which had a description of the character with game stats that was written by uh, Salvatore himself. Yeah. And, um, the second version of Dungeons and Dragons came out in the nineties, but was set in the forgotten realms, which is basically where all of Salvador's books are set. So yep. I don't go too far down the rabbit hole here. With I'm already bored. I'm bored. Yeah, I know Cat. we lost Cat. I wanted to see the Cat. Cat, <laughs> I'm, I'm bored too. 
I was listening intently and and learning. I guarantee you, once this once that game comes out, yeah, I'll be, be standing over at your house going, yeah. So what level are you on now? And you're gonna be like a hundred and three. Well, you know what? You reminded me that um, you know in, in connection with this uh, announcement, they actually released released a like four minute animated. Uh, video explaining sort of an abbreviated history of of the character that was narrated by Benedict Cumberbatch. After watching that, I was like, "Oh, we got to do one of these art campaigns, these RPG campaigns. This looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be the first one we introduce Cat to as one of the." Uh, I was just going to say that. Can I be brisk? Drist. Oops. <laughs> brisk. See, that's a great brisk? name for your character. Brisk. <laughs> And then what's the tagline from Brisk? That's Brisk, baby. You could just have that as your tagline every time something happens in the yeah. game. Every time you kill somebody. Right. Why did you do that? That's Brisk, baby. Do you want to practice, cat? I can't. I'm laughing. <laughs> All right. Hey, that was... You want to do it? Do I have to say it in a deep voice? No, you say it in your voice. Pretend you just <laughs> slaughtered a ogre or something. Mm-hmm. That's brisk, baby. That's perfect. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay, hey, that was 1980s news. Hey, if you like the show so far, come on, you do, right? Well, I do. Except for maybe that segment where Ray was going on way too long about. <laughs> but in spite of that, or because of it, subscribe to the show. It's free. It's easy. You'll be notified. Trust me, you want to do it. Seeing it in a way as if to hypnotize you. You want to subscribe. Okay, today on the show, we're going to be talking about the power of uh, pop culture in the 1980s. And a little bit later, we'll be speaking about that with our guest, David Sirota. All right, so, you know, we've talked a bit about this a little bit on other shows. I'm sure we'll be able to get into it in greater detail with David because he's an expert. But I think it's, it'd be interesting from our perspective as just talking about lay people who, you know, experience this media as kids in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Again, we've talked about it, and Ray made the comments to, to us earlier that it seems like, you know, we were more unified in the 1980s with, around pop culture, probably because we didn't have a whole lot of choices. Yeah, I think we were all watching the same things because there wasn't as many options. So we all talked about it. And the more we talked about it, the kids who weren't watching it started watching it because they wanted to have the, you know, the water cooler talk. Yeah. Isn't that how it was when you were growing up? Like, oh, yeah. One, the coolest kid in the school said, hey, did you see the Dukes of Hazard last night? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you made yeah, yeah. sure the following week that you were on board and ready to go. The coolest kids in the school didn't talk to me. Oh, I no. I had to find them on my own to <laughs> find the I cool shows. I am shocked. <laughs> so you don't even know what the cool kids were watching. You couldn't even watch it. No. <laughs> well, it wasn't hard to find the Dukes of Hazard. Come on. No, it wasn't. I watched I watched that religiously oh, okay. because my dad loved it, too. So that helped. My dad was in charge of the TV. So. Well, yeah, that's how it was yeah. in most folks homes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, at my house we had we had three boys, so we just yeah. did whatever we had to do to get our Dukes of yeah. Hazard. Ray's house they probably put the Dukes of Hazard on and then ripped the knob off so their mother couldn't change well, the channel or <laughs> Technically, we were very uh, a hoity-toity lower middle-class family. We had two 19-inch TVs. Ooh. So we were able wow. to watch it in the bedroom. What? That's yeah. high living. That is. Oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. We had one TV. It was yeah. all, you know, one of those big ones that sat on the floor and didn't go anywhere. It was furniture. Yep. Right. Our first one had little legs on it. Yeah. It was That's like right. Cabinet style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we had fewer TV channels. We had fewer TVs, except for Ray. We had fewer movies released and you had fewer places you could see movies. You had to basically go to the movie theater or right. you're watching it uh, after it's older on, on TV or, or eventually on cable mm-hmm. compared to today, where according to a FCC report, Dated March 21st of this year. You want to guess how many broadcast television stations are in the U.S.? <laughs> oh, right now? Yeah, right now. It's compared to our three channels, uh, maybe four or five channels in the 1980s. I'm not talking about cable. You could add cable even, and you probably still altogether didn't exceed, what, 500? I don't know, 300? Oh, I don't even think we got the 300 back yeah. then. There's probably 100 cable channels, three regular channels. So. Oh, we're talking yeah. back then or now? Well, I'm just saying well, by comparison. So, right. Yeah. So I'm going to guess yeah. 2,187. Oh, that's a decent guess. You, you want to venture a guess, Kat, how many channels we have today, according to the FCC? Broadcast television stations in the U.S. One more than Ray said. <laughs> this is ah. the price is right. <laughs> she, she just price is right at me. <laughs> I get both over. So the, the correct answer is 1,758. Uh, that's close enough. That's close enough. Yeah, around yeah. 2,000. We were both over. 
So <laughs> odds are folks in your house today aren't watching the same programs, you know, they can't, and, 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 and kids going to school aren't saying, hey, did you see uh, Breaking Bad, probably the kids today, did you see Breaking Bad last night? <laughs> no, I'm seven. What is that? Can yeah. I just tell you when I started watching, yeah. well, before I started watching Cobra Kai today, yeah. I texted my husband who was upstairs <laughs> and I said, that, yeah. hey, did you like that enough? Because he'd already seen it, right? I said, oh, did yeah. you like that enough? Would you watch it again? We can watch yeah. it together. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, I really liked it, but I have other things. You know, you, oh, you should catch up on your own. He's on to the next show. Yes, it is amazing mm-hmm. how, yeah, we're, we're not all on the same page at all. You're even texting. <laughs> you know, and the thing that, yeah. I think the thing that, you know, ultimately, well, again, we'll talk to David about this, but the fact that we had fewer choices in the 1980s, and a lot of this is sort of what, you know, David concludes in, in his book and in his, his talks, it's not necessarily a good thing in, in the sense that it was very easy for us, as, especially as youths, to be exposed to a similar message or the same message, regardless mm-hmm. of which three channels or shows, you know, we watched. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't a, you know, nefarious plan necessarily, but it seemed like, and again, we're not an expert in this regard, but that a lot of the shows had similar messages. And a lot of them jived with, you know, the sort of, you know, I guess the uh, government or, or political philosophies of the time. Mm-hmm. We weren't aware of it as children, but when you look mm-hmm. back, there's a lot of TV shows and movies that had similar sentiments like Rambo, Commando, mm-hmm. Missing in Action, Knight Rider. You know, you got the one man mm-hmm. army sort of right, thing. Right, you got yeah. the, but then you got groups of folks like the 18, Ghostbusters, Dukes of Hazard, people that mm-hmm. operate outside the law. Mm-hmm. Even in sports, right. you've got Michael Jordan, who, you know, the Bulls, you know, we were told the Bulls sucked so badly that, but for Michael Jordan, you know, they wouldn't have been champions in the 1980s. I don't know enough about it to know if that's true, but that's sort of the, that's a narrative we were fed, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly as kids, you weren't aware of that, right? Do you look back now and say, oh, now I, my philosophy was affected by the A-team's- uh- <laughs> Absolutely, I think this affected us because yep. the A-team, the government was yep. the bad guys. Yep. Mm-hmm. Dukes of Hazard, the cops were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. The politicians were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe the Incredible Hulk, the government were the bad oh, guys. Oh, yeah. There you mm-hmm. go. Right. Um, yeah, greatest yeah. American hero was hiding his things from the government. Mm-hmm. G.I. Joe, the Americans mm-hmm. were the good guys, and it seemed like all the bad guys were foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Transformers, yep. all the good guys were normal kind of cars. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and all the Decepticons were like military vehicles. Yes, that's right. Ooh, that's Fighter planes, right, right? tanks, mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, and they gave you that cool message at the end. Hate the government. Do, right. do, do, do. Uh, yeah. What was it? Uh, the more you know, the more you hate the government. Wasn't that what they said at the end of the yeah, show? Yeah. And then, and then a rainbow appeared. But right. not a multicolored rainbow. Only a red, white, and blue rainbow. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I don't think Ray's yeah. getting when he, or, you know, exaggerating very much when he talks about how this. I'm absolutely, this is one of those lingering times. impact. <laughs> or, I don't think I'm actually exaggerating right now. Okay. That's the scary the- part. My finger is always on the button ready to press it, but I don't think he was. I don't think you can press that liar button right now, buddy. Yeah, no. What do you think, Kat? <laughs> well, I grew up in a family where there, there was a certain lawlessness <laughs> oh. approach uh, to many things. and But I didn't adopt that myself. Actually, yeah. some people think I'm an alien when it comes to my family. <laughs> and <laughs> in fact, I kind of had the opposite reaction to... <laughs> um, I'm definitely more, you know, subscribing to what, what's what's the proper pathway here. Uh, mm. I would have been a terrible companion, like for Indiana Jones. I would have said, "I don't think we should be doing this." <laughs> it's a short movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I can witness it. Like I, I, I've been around it, and I get mm. it. I've been exposed to it, and I can appreciate it. Mm. Although I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I definitely didn't think about it at the time. Yeah, in a in a conscious way, but I didn't adopt it as a personal <laughs> approach. It seems like your family that we're describing mm-hmm. may have been more influenced by sort of you know, let's say the media of the 1980s, and you at some point made a conscious decision to reject mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. the sort of messages we were getting as kids growing up in that era. Might have been fear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes. I was afraid of my parents first, and then the law with regard to getting in trouble for anything. It kept me in check. Then breaking bones was probably third. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Mm, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I remember this is when I was in high school, first learning to drive. I thought 
all right, in the Dukes of Hazard, if I'm speeding or something, I just have to make it out of Hudson County and then they can't pull me over. You just got to get out of the county and then you're fine. If I can find a ramp and jump over a river, uh, yeah. even better. And yell yeehaw. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean for a while? Isn't that, isn't that still like how you get out of trouble? Oh, I got a chart for you. I want to show you. A list. Huh. So, you know, we're talking about how we had limited choices in the 1980s. Had some good effects bringing us together, had some bad effects maybe, or had some other effects. Let's say we'll talk about a lot that more detail with David. But also we had some changes administratively uh, regarding regulations that, you know, may, led to the 1,758 stations we have today. Uh, for example, in, in 1981, the FCC extended TV licenses to five years, where they used to, um, from three in 1981. And the number of television stations any single entity could own grew from seven in 81 to 12 in 85. Of course, by 1983, 50 corporations controlled the vast majority of all media in the U.S. Hmm. Guess how many companies control the most of uh, what we hear and read and watch today? Like three. Oh, oh look, look, we matched. Oh, you're both saying three. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you know, depending on how you count it, you could be right. But my most accounts, I see it's it's anywhere between five. It's either five or six, depending. Mm-hmm. I think if you include Sony or not. Somehow, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. So as a result of, you know, a lot of these changes, uh, it allowed for this further and further consolidation. Whereas today we have 1,700 channels. But as some folks would describe, we actually have just the illusion of choice because we're really choosing maybe from five or six <laughs> different companies that produce content, Mm -hmm. you know, and and also it's different than the 1980s was that it used to be that content companies, you know, like the studios would produce the TV shows and movies and then would sell it to a TV channel or a a movie distribution company. Now they just make it themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. you've got Mm -hmm. like a company like Netflix that not only licenses films that exist, eh, we'll just make our own. You got (laughs) Amazon buying MGM. Not only will we sell books, (laughs) we'll make movies too. I mean, Sort of monumental, again, if you think about how things affected us then and now. In 1985, they eliminated how much advertising can be carried per hour. So as we talked with John uh, from Gen X Grown Up, Mm. this allowed them to advertise to children, you know, (laughs) on these shows and essentially have, you know, Transformers TV Mm -hmm. show and Transformers commercials that were sort of, you know, equal time. Mm -hmm. I still think that's a good idea. I really do, because the commercials back then were way cooler. Yeah, I guess it just (laughs) depends, you know... And now it's different because kids just skip commercials or whatever. But if they wanted to sell something else to us that, you know, our families wouldn't approve of necessarily, we're still getting bombarded with it, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you right now, if these kids would actually sit through a commercial, they would understand how important a commercial yeah. is. <laughs> well, I like, think you definitely learn patience. Well, no, like when we were kids, it would be, hey, here's the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. Do you want to take it home? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Look how many characters you can fit in this thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And these right. kids are missing out on that. They're, yep. They don't get their Falcon. You know what they get? <laughs> they just get their cartoon. That's all they get. Yeah. yeah. The other big change as far as regulations go in the 87 that you could see how it just affected, you know, just got us where we are today. The mm-hmm. fairness doctrine was eliminated. So prior to 87, we had this doctrine, the FCC had this doctrine that required TV station, stations to make every reasonable effort to cover both sides of a, uh, you know, both contrasting points of view. They eliminated that. So now you can get news programs that just say, they're essentially just opinion shows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh. Not news. <laughs> yeah, which news. is, you know, shortly after that, you know, we've got news networks that start popping up that just pump, you know, sort of one angle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh, I don't like that one. Well, you know, I think the combination of all these things, you know, <laughs> could be very dangerous. And again, again mm-hmm. we'll, we'll ask David about that when we talk to him because yeah. he, He's written books on it. Mm-hmm. More commercials for kids, good. <laughs> I don't see how you say Partial that. news, bad. You know, how about this, Ray? Can we, instead of having commercials for kids to teach them something, can we just have to have them pause for two minutes and do nothing? The screen just goes blank for two minutes or countdown. <laughs> did, what channel did that? A meditation. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Didn't wall. Nickelodeon do that? Mm. Mm, I don't remember that. Some channel went blank for like 24 hours or something. It was like, go outside yet, you heathens. Play some oh. games or something. What the hell was that? It does sound familiar. Yeah. I don't remember, but yeah. That's I think you're right. I think it was Nickelodeon or something like that. It's good that I bring yep. it up without having no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, most of our show. Yeah, whatever. Was this back then in the 80s? I have no idea. I don't, I don't think so. I think it might have been in the 90s. No context. Yeah. So <laughs> I think what happened was is they said, hey, you need to be more like 80s kids and go outside and play for a while. 
And they just shut their channel down for like 24 hours. Wow. It's like, don't come back in until you have a scab. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or a sunburn. Broken. Something broken. Yeah. If you have no, if there's no damage on your yeah. skin, get back outside. Yeah. <laughs> but this could all be fictional because, you know. Mm-hmm. Liar! <laughs> Liar! <laughs> Liar! <laughs> I'm sorry. We thought we would make it, but. Mm-mm. Yeah. Once I look it up though next week, you owe me an apology for that liar. Oh, oh. See, see what he's doing? That's that thing again. He does that trick. The thing is, he knows I'm never going to follow up with him. (laughs) All right. Hey, anything else about this that we can talk about? Nope. Okay. Well, we talked about our recollections and research, a little bit of research about the unifying power of media in the 1980s. So now let's talk to an expert about how 1980s pop culture continues to influence us today. And maybe not in a positive way. Uh, in a moment, when we're joined by our guest, David Sirota. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1980. Our guest today is an award-winning and best-selling author. He is the publisher of The Daily Poster and a columnist at The Guardian. He's also co-producing the upcoming Netflix film, Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay and starring Jennifer Lawrence, Leonardo DiCaprio, and a host of Hollywood's finest actors. Our guest's third book, Back to Our Future, was the basis for the National Geographic Channel's miniseries, The 80s, The Decade That Made Us. And it's also the reason that I may have sounded even remotely intelligent uh, earlier in the podcast. Please welcome to the show, David Sorota. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Look, we're so grateful to have you on the show. Now, whereas we tend to focus on the lighter side of, of, of the pop culture, we do agree on something. And the fact that, and that's that we don't believe nostalgia alone accounts for the long-lasting impact of the 1980s or the importance of those that 10-year span. Our perspective, again, coming from a more, uh, I don't know, fun side, I guess, is that uh, we haven't seen a 10-year span with so much art, music, movies, you know, books, so much born out of it since. Now, your book come, it comes from a different angle in that the 1980s is, is still with us, albeit maybe, <laughs> they say, in a negative way, or maybe the collateral damage that we're now reaping from the media that we love. Can you explain why the 1980s may have never gone away? First and foremost, yeah. a lot of the people who grew up in the 1980s in the pop yeah. culture of that era are now in the stage of their lives where they're in positions of authority and power sure. to both shape the culture now, shape politics now, shape business now, shape the world now. So so that's kind of a natural thing where a generation is steeped in a particular kind of culture and then grows up into the generation that uh, you know runs the world. So. Right. I think that why was 1980s popular culture so impactful um, for that generation in the specific ways it was impactful? I think, as you allude to, I mean, I think it was a it was, in a sense, um, a golden age of um, of of mass media as opposed mm-hmm. to niche media. So right. it was arguably the last uh, part of. Uh, at least in recent history, the last part of our uh, of American history in which there were consolidated conduits of information that uh, everyone or most everyone uh, was consuming. Uh, so right. in specific, there were, you know, relatively few television channels, relatively few radio stations, uh, relatively, few uh, newspapers without, for instance, the competition of the internet, which meant that the uh, basis of information that everyone was consuming was was small enough that everyone was consuming roughly the same mm. kind of things so that the conversation was on uh, one or at least a few uh, sort of foundations. Right. Uh, and so it was a commonality uh, that and a common language and a, and a common vernacular uh, that we uh, 
as a society could all uh, relate to or or at least relate to in juxtaposition with. So that is really powerful. I mean, right now you think about your your life right now. I mean, you may be watching one channel, another person may be watching another channel, another person may be uh, getting their news from the internet or getting the news from from a a newspaper. There's less of a common basis of information. So the 1980s, that really the mass in mass media was Mm. really, really big uh, and had a really uh, huge impact. And, And I think, you know, my book is a lot about the stories that 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 those mass conduits of information were telling us and, mm. and the messages behind the seemingly non-political uh, uh, products that were being produced uh, in those conduits. I mean, movies, uh, sitcoms, uh, you know, other television shows, uh, books, uh, you know, things that are not traditionally considered political. Uh, we know as a, for a fact that, yeah. Almost all of them include some form of uh, value judgments, political judgments, ideology. And if you look at the most successful products of the 1980s, the ones we remember so well, uh, a lot of them had a very, whether you agree with them or not, by the way, I think it's indisputable that they had uh, very clear, uh, pointed political ideologies uh, that they were transmitting. And in my case, you know, transmitting to uh, somebody who was uh, basically a kid and, 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 and the, you know, the, I don't want to call it the problem, but it's certainly the, 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 the issue here is that, you know, when, when, when you're an adult and you see a political ad, yeah. uh, there's a filter in your mind that, that kicks in where you say, okay, mm-hmm. I'm watching a political ad. I'm an, I have an adult brain. So I know that what I'm about to see may be kind of tilted or rigged or at least ideological. Uh, in the 1980s for a lot of kids, um, you know, the, 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 the child brain isn't as mm-hmm. obviously developed as the adult brain and the political messages were baked into cultural products uh, that weren't overtly political, which meant that they circumvented the filter. They could deliver a political message uh, without uh, the uh, the cognitive filter of the audience going up and saying, wait a minute, I know this is a political message, right? So there are political messages uh, baked into, uh, you know, movies like uh, Ghostbusters or TV shows sure. uh, <laughs> like The A-Team. Uh, I mean, and there, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, I get that there's this idea that, you know, you can't, oh, you can't take the movie, the Ghostbusters literally. And look, the Ghostbusters is one of my favorite movies, right? But yep. <laughs> right, you can't, you can't exactly take it literally. But if you actually think, take one second to think about that story yep. uh, and who the bad guys are and who right. the good guys are. <laughs> I mean, it's really like a like a very political message. I mean, it's it's you know, there's a there's a politician in there, there's a mayor, there's a e, the EPA guy, right? And, and and my point is not to kind of, you know, there's an eye rolling. Oh, you're taking it literally. It's no, I'm not taking it literally. Like I love the Ghostbusters, but <laughs> but but the myths and the stories and the narratives that are in a cultural product like that because they are wrapped in a comedic movie and a, you know, a comedy adventure, whatever you horror movie, whatever you want to call that, that, that flick, because they're wrapped in that, as opposed to saying, Hey, this is a political message. uh, The, the, the ideology of it is transmitted in a much deeper way. Now I want to be last point on this. I don't think that the producers of all of that pop culture, Ghostbusters or anything else, I don't think they sat down and were like, hmm, how do we like- (laughs) Indoctrinate uh, children. Indoctrinate children. Like, I don't think that's not how it works. (laughs) They were trying to reflect the uh, norms of the day to get the biggest audience possible. I mean, there's a little bit of art imitating life, imitating art uh, going on here. But But the point is, is that when those messages are amplified and burned in by uh, entertainment culture, popular culture, uh, it can actually be more powerful uh, than anything else. And you don't have to trust me about this, yeah. right? I, I, we recently reported, I, I do a, a, a work on a journalism project called The Daily Poster. We recently uh, wrote about some of this, that there was a letter in the 19, I think it was the 1950s, um, in which Dwight Eisenhower was talking about, as president, talking about how to best influence 
the Soviet population to be mm. uh, more uh, hostile towards communism and to be more open towards American, uh, you know, the United States and American democracy. And in the letter, he essentially says, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he essentially says the most influential ways to do this are through art, music, and popular culture, sure. not through kind of 1984 style Orwellian propaganda, but through much more subtle uh, entertainment and popular culture conduits. And so he's absolutely right. And so we have to look at the same kinds of information uh, that was being blasted at us as you know, kids and teenagers growing up in the 1980s. What were the messages that we were being sent and, and how have they stuck with us? Yeah, and in specific, you know, when you're talking about these, uh, the films that you referenced, just to be clear, you're talking about these, at least in one regard, the anti-government sentiment that we had ushered in, at least by Ronald Reagan. Um, certainly there were other folks, there were other messengers that were, you know, sharing that same message, but um, that's the one theme you're talking about was sort of baked into a lot of our, our popular culture, whether it was done for the purpose of influence or not. Um, yeah, and I think like I mean again, like use the Ghostbusters as, as an example if you really get and, and the A team is equally yeah. um, equally <laughs> all of the things well. we love. I know, and I love them, right? But like, <laughs> and, and again, I don't think I don't think they were sitting down and saying, "Ha ha, we have to indoctrinate yes. kids." But I think they hmm. were looking at a world in which there were there were myths and stories that were being told to this world uh, that were then being um, assumed as true, and so in order to get a large audience, yeah. uh, Hollywood produces things that reflect those stories. So the, the Ghostbusters, I mean, think about this story. You've got a city that's under attack uh, by basically uh, interdimensional terrorists, ghosts. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, the government cannot yes. <laughs> adequately respond uh, to this to this problem. Uh, in fact, the yeah. one of the faction of the government, the Environmental Protection Agency, actually makes the situation worse. Right? The, <laughs> one of yes. the bad guys, yes. the, the main bad guy, is is an EPA representative <laughs> right. who who basically comes to shut down mm -hmm. the private corporation, mm -hmm. the Ghostbusters, that is actually uh, effectively dealing with it uh, in in a way that the government is too inept to deal with. So it is a story of like, the government is actually part of the problem. Uh, it is a story of, you know, private business, private corporations are the uh, easiest and best able to help. Uh, and oftentimes they are the best able to help because they can ignore the laws, they can ignore, uh, they can do whatever they want. I mean, at one point, one of the funniest lines, and I love it, it's such a great movie, but it, it, it's, if you listen to, you know, the, one of the underlying storylines of, of Peter Bankman in that movie, mm -hmm. he keeps making jokes about it, about how much money they're going to make, right? I mean, he keeps <laughs> dropping these lines about oh, yeah. how profitable this is going to be, right? So there's like this like super hardcore capitalist <laughs> message in there as well. He's like, you know, we're not just here to save the day because we're like good guys, right? We're here to save the day because we're going to make bank baby mm. right like like that is a very 1980s message and it's yeah. and again like not to take it too far but like look we still see that today right you know oh the government can't do anything oh, you know yeah. we have to outsource things to private corporations yeah. there's not a direct line from the ghostbusters to that. <laughs> but there is like a if we if you tell yourself that story <laughs> enough times as a society yeah. then guess what when it's time to make like you know, public policy decisions, those stories inform how we as a society think about those decisions. You know, it's odd to me that, you know, so much of uh, Reagan's platform and so much, and as a result, or I don't know which begat which, but um, the idea that this hearkening back to the 1950s, in part of it was just like you were suggested earlier that folks in power, the adults now, or just, you know, they're being somewhat nostalgic for their youths. But it seems odd to me that, you know, what you're touching upon with the Ghostbusters and this anti-government sentiment and the flip side, the other part of some of your uh, theses in, in the book is this idea that the sort of, I guess, antidote is, you know, rugged individualism or these rogue heroes is that that idea seems counter to me to what I imagine 1950s culture was. You know, I know you point out this one idea that uh, civic, you know, participation dropped off precipitously by the 1980s as compared to prior decades. I don't know how we reconcile the fact that, you know, on the one hand, that some of these themes are anti, you know, the era that supposedly these folks were trying to usher us back into. 
Right. I mean, I think, uh, and some of these things are, are at odds with each other. I mean, I, there definitely was a strain in the 1980s in popular culture about uh, deifying, worshiping uh, the 1950s. I think a lot of that uh, was a, a backlash to the 1960s and early 1970s, this idea that the country, uh, that the hippies, et cetera, et cetera, had, had gotten out of control in the 1960s. And we just want to go back to quote unquote normalcy uh, of the 1950s. Uh, you know, and I think there was a lot of racial politics involved in that, you know, sure. backlash to the civil rights movement and the like. Right. And, and, and again, you can, you can see uh, that, uh, in in I mean movies are the easiest ones to talk about. I mean mo you know, Back to the Future. You know the kid has to uh, is trying to escape. You know uh, at that point terrorists. Right. You know, <laughs> basically, um, a, a kind of uh, crumbling modernity uh, to hmm. escape back into the idyllic 1950s. I mean one of the most retrograde movies if you really i've and i've you know i used to love this movie and now i find it actually sort of disturbing mm. uh is uh the big chill oh yeah. Uh, yeah i mean the big chill it's like you know at, at one level it's like a, it's like a great it's in, you know it's funny and jeff goldblum's hilarious and you know but then if you actually think about what they're saying i mean there's right. this scene where they're sitting around the table uh and they're talking about how it's kind of how stupid and bad and 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 idiotic they were in the 1960s, and how dumb they were to kind of, you know, to, to to have been involved in the political causes they were involved in, and now they've grown up and they've, you know, they understand how dumb that was. I mean, it's really like sort of really retrograde stuff that again is baked into um, is baked into the narratives we were telling ourselves. Now, I agree with you. Like there was also this strain of, of hyper individualism in the 1980s that's, you know, that probably didn't really um, exist at the level it came to be celebrated at in the 1980s, didn't exist in the 50s in, in that way. Uh, but that was kind of a different thing. I mean, I think I think in you know you look at uh, sports as like a whole other you know realm here, right? right. I mean, you look at the um, you know the, the 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 Michael Jordan phenomenon uh, and this this sort of deification of the individual, just do it. Um, you know, I mean, that has been a strain. Individ rugged individualism has been a strain in American life for you know since the cowboy days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Certainly in the 19, and you know, and I have a lot of examples in the book, you know, the deification of the individual CEO, right? Like right. Lee Iacocca and like these huge towering business figures, uh, you know, on Wall Street, right? This sort of idea of the great man of history, uh, as it's called, this idea that singular, giant, superhuman, larger than life individuals are really what drives our culture, you know, is a very, again, it's been in our culture for a long time. In sure. the 1980s, it became a huge, huge thing. And look, we saw that. I think I really don't think it's a stretch to say that we saw the manifestation of that uh, in Donald Trump. Right? I mean, Donald Trump literally at one point said when he I mean, first of all, he's a super 1980s kind of character. He, sure. I mean, he was, by the way, one of the, you know, these so-called great men of history. Right. And, you know, the book Art of the Deal, you know, all these myth making about Donald Trump being this just a, like singularly incredible businessman. A lot of I mean, in my view, a lot, it's a lot of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> but when he even when he was like resurrected, I mean, the fact the fact that he could run for an 80s icon who really hadn't done anything huge. Uh, successfully since the 1980s, yep. right? To be resurrected to run for president kind of is proof of the thesis that the 1980s <laughs> is still with us. But to the point of the individual idea, yep. I mean, he said something to the effect of, you know, only I can deliver, right? right? Yep. Only I am able to deliver what I'm saying, which really is an expression of the, you know, it's the, it's the ultimate expression of the, of the so-called great man theory that was first, um, I guess, if not first, it was, it was hugely amplified in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah. You know, in many regards, it seems to me, this is not something you broke. I'm just, look, this is a pretty green theory right now for me, but I was thinking about, um, there's some analogy, I think, or some to be drawn to just how adolescents develop. And I was thinking, you know, you know, that originally that the idea that we had both anti-government sentiment and uh, this, you know, individualism, this narcissism born at the eight, eight, 1980s was the product of the same source. Um, but 
thinking about it a little further, and again, this is pretty green. So, you know, you're the journalist, you're the expert on researching these things. That maybe the individualism was a response to this, you know, Reagan-esque movement to bring us back to the 1950s. And much the way adolescents develop, you know, we know that there's this period in time when they try to break away from their parents. And if parents respond in such a way as to try to claw back their children and, and keep them from experimenting in a way that defines their own individuality, they try even more outrageous, you know, this is, you know, generalization, try even out more outrageous things to break away and even demonize their parents, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I certainly, I certainly think there's something to that. I certainly think there's a, um, you know, it, it, it intertwined also with the, with the worship of wealth, hmm. which I think, I think is fair to say that the 1980s, uh, was a period in which it wasn't just that there was economic inequality. Right. It wasn't just that there were really rich people. It's that it's that economic inequality and extreme wealth was overtly celebrated in right. a way that it had not been celebrated uh, before. I mean, you know, I wasn't around obviously in the 1920s, uh, yep. you know, in the, in the Gilded Age. I mean, maybe it was celebrated like that back, back then, but you know, it, it, Great wealth uh, was not celebrated in in, our, in popular culture yep. uh, in in the fifties, the sixties, even into the seventies. In the nineteen eighties, it really became uh, kind of a, a thing, right? I mean, just you know, keeping up with the Joneses became you know yeah. something way more absurd. I mean, there was this quote from um, uh, Michael Douglas. Uh, it was a re relatively recently, last ten years. Um, he said something along these lines. He said, you know, when when we made Wall Street. Um, you know, Wall Street was supposed to be a cautionary tale. Obviously, mm. I'm paraphrasing here. Yep. But he said, you know, I kept meeting people on Wall Street who kept telling me that they loved Gordon Gecko oh, yeah. uh -huh. and that they they actually loved him as a hero, yes. as like not an anti-hero, but as like as the hero figure. And and Douglas sort of said, I, you know, it was really kind of disturbing to me that <laughs> that yep. had happened. <laughs> but you know, like that's how uh, how that that materialized. And I so I think the sort of focus on the individual uh, quote unquote great man theory intertwined with the celebration of uh, just unfathomable amounts of individual wealth like those two those two cross currents worked together uh, mm. to to really uh, and, and frankly I, I mean that that is an enduring legacy of the uh, of the 1980s I mean the celebration of just you know, billionaires and, and that, I mean, that is a direct outgrowth of that culture in the 1980s. Hmm. Yeah. You're right about the wall street. I've, I've got friends that are stockbrokers and wall streets like required watching, you know, by uh, up and coming uh, brokers and uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, you know, I guess, how do we reconcile our love for 1980s pop culture, which we tend, which we celebrate on this show. And again, we look for those sort of angles to show that, you know, it's, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but find ways of looking at pop culture in a way that shows how important it is aside from, I guess, the, the nostalgia. But how do we reconcile our love for Ghostbusters, for example, with now seeing or understanding these, you know, from this other lens where we can see these types of messages, maybe, you know, again, not, not necessarily purposely to indoctrinate children, but are certainly baked in. Well, I mean, it's a good question. And, and, and I, and look, I think there's a, you can both understand the political context for something, not really uh, necessarily support the political context for something, but also find it to be an enjoyable, um, uh, skillful uh, uh, product, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I am not somebody who says, well, you know, I realize that, that the message of Ghostbusters is one the underlying message is one that I don't agree with. Therefore, I don't like, go I think I, you know, I hate right. Ghostbusters. I don't, I don't, I don't think it has to exist like that. Right. I, I guess my point is, is that you can like something and be cognizant and media literate about what it's actually saying. And you don't have to agree with what it's actually saying in order to at least find some entertainment out of it. Now, certainly there can be a slippery slope. Like, you know, there's some products from the, you know, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, you know, 60s, all, all the decades that, that prior that are, for instance, like openly racist. Like yep. maybe you probably shouldn't like, you know, enjoy those anymore. Right. <laughs> but I think like, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a way to appreciate 
these things while also understanding the context of them. I mean, look, when we talk about the civil civil rights and, and, and race, I mean, I have a lot of writing on that in, in, the, in the book. And that is one of the most fascinating things. I mean, the, 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 the right. racial politics of the Cosby show right. is just absolutely just unbelievably fascinating in this sense, which is, you know, a huge achievement for uh, racial equality in some senses that getting a, you know, huge primetime television show starring African-American characters and African-American family uh, on primetime television. is just, it's, it's an enormous leap forward for, for, uh, you know, for, for the culture. Right. It just, it, it, you know, the, but, but you've got to understand the evolution of it which is actually a more disturbing story, which is that in the 1970s, and we, we track this in the book, there's data about this, the 1970s um, produced a number of shows starring African-Americans about an African-American families, uh, certainly uh, the, the Norman Lear shows, sure. uh, in, which the, in which the families were uh, more working class. Uh, and that the Cosby show creators uh, uh, and I, I kind of trace it in this linear way. There was the Norman Lear shows, which were working class African-American families. And then one of the bridge shows was Benson, which was, you sort of had a working class African-American, uh, but inside of, uh, kind of an elite, uh, white, uh, uh, uh in fact, it was the governor's mansion right. on that show. And then you had the Cosby show, which originally, this is a really interesting fact, which was originally going to be a more working class family and they audience tested it and the audience if i'm remembering this right the, mm. the, the they got a better test back they were going to make claire a limo driver and cliff wow. a, a um a, a carpenter mm. and they basically got a better audience test or better feedback from making them uh, much more uh, economically upscale mm. uh, and what you see is there's a stat that basically um Working class African American characters essentially disappeared from television in from the 70s into the 1980s. That there were more African American characters on TV, but almost zero of them were portraying working class characters. Now, right. that really, you know, to understand the context of the and, and look, Bill Cosby, you know, has has said, and you know, not talking about the you know current scandal plagued Bill Cosby. We yes. talk, but he's been asked about this and he basically was like, look, you know, we had to make some decisions here that, you know, that if we got all essentially, if we got too into making a political statement, it would uh, undermine uh, the progress that we were making with the larger product. Now you can take issue sure. with, you know, should they have not made it, you know, working class and all, all that you know, and I'm not, I'm not like 2020 hindsight, but my point is, is to understand, you know, the context of, of when you're appreciating these cultural products to understand the political decisions that they, because those are political decisions, right? That is a yeah, political absolutely. decision to try to un, be media literate about what was actually going on. I think it gives you a deeper understanding of what you're actually, you know, watching uh, that goes beyond just the fact that, you know, the Cosby show was funny. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're describing is a, they're trying to make it more palatable to a wider audience so they can get in those living rooms. Yes. So in your book, you ultimately conclude, I think, in, in saying that um, in order to, and again, the book is 10 years old now, so I'm curious where you think we are at today. But as of 2011, when the book was published, you were saying how in order to put these you know, seeming evils, let's say, and maybe I'm being hyperbolic, back into the box, we have to consciously sort of, you know, claw them back using our media in a way that creates a society or culture that is, you know, that we want to see in the future? Well, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one takeaway is uh, from the book, I hope is that uh, it's a simple one, but you know, it goes back to the Dwight Eisenhower point, which is that, you know, culture does have a profound uh, effect on politics and public policy. Uh, and I would actually argue that um, it has an even more profound effect today than it did in the 1980s, that the 1980s seems 
from this perspective seems quaint that you know you have members of congress and politicians are almost their own social media stars yeah. uh, in a way that you know it, that that didn't really exist back then in the 1980s beyond maybe be, you know essentially it didn't exist beyond the presidency sure. but you know and so you know the 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 distinction between a politician and a and a cultural icon uh, these distinctions are getting blurry uh, and so it only underscores the idea that culture really does, you know, entertainment culture, music culture, sports culture, right? These are not uh, cultures that uh, that are siloed uh, and kind of in a hermetically sealed vacuum from the political culture, from right. political ideology, from elections, right? These things are all sort of melding together uh, in a way that I think they were only starting uh, to in in the 1980s. Do we have any hope? Is there any hope for us? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I absolutely, I absolutely think there is. I mean, I, I think that um, you know, I, th I think we're, frankly, I think that we, I, I hope. I mean, my own politics. I, I believe we are potentially at have crossed over uh, and at the end of what I would of what we commonly refer to as the Reagan era. I mean, I mm. think that the Reagan era. It, you could make a good argument that the Reagan era went from, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan's presidency to uh, Donald Trump's presidency. That sure. basically the Reagan, the paradigms of the Reagan era, the messages, the the assumptions, the ideologies, they basically dominated, you know, politics and and civic life for that period of time, and that we may actually be into something different now part of it may be something worse part of it may be something something better i mean i i you know i don't want to get too deep into into politics but 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 i think that you know i i do think the kind of as a political era the reagan era has run its course uh, and we are ready as a society to tell ourselves uh mm. new stories new narratives uh and i think we are seeing those new stories uh and new narratives being told and and look i think you know some of them are some of them I wildly disagree with. Others of them I think are long overdue. Uh, so I, I, I choose to be hopeful that that we're going to start telling ourselves uh, different stories uh, than necessarily we told ourselves in the 1980s. We're going to start telling ourselves stories that you know, uh, you know, to use politics, but also you know, we referred to Ghostbusters. You know, Ronald, Ronald Reagan's yeah. famous <laughs> famous thing. You know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. He said yes. that mockingly. You know, I think we're in an era now where somebody says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, and in some cases, uh, that's actually true. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and people <laughs> people don't think, you know, I mean, like there are other examples of the government doing terrible things, you know, uh, police brutality and the like. But I think, you know, you think about like people getting vaccinated. Right. For the the covid va vaccine. You know, if somebody says I'm from the government, I'm here to help give you a vaccine like, you know, Hopefully, people we're going to start telling ourselves a story that's not like anybody who says they're from the government is like you know Walter Peck from uh, from from Ghostbusters. Like maybe we should start telling ourselves a different story, right? And so I think we are starting to tell ourselves a different story, and I think that's a good thing. You do your job, pencil neck. Don't tell me how to do mine. <laughs> exactly. That's the that that's the cop. Yeah, exactly. You grew up with uh, Adam F. Goldberg. I did, and obviously he's the creator of the Goldbergs. Yes. Uh, how strange is it to see you on the show? Oh boy! I mean, that's been one of the craziest things. I mean, in <laughs> retrospect, it it actually. Uh, I mean, Adam was always into theater, always into you know. I mean, he he was the kid at school, uh, and, and they actually capture it very well uh, at the beginning of the show, where they show the Adam Goldberg character with the video camera. I mean, Adam always, he had the first, you know, his mom got him a camcorder and he always had it. We made these ridiculous movies. So in some ways it's like, oh, of course he was going to, you know, become a you know Hollywood guy and make TV shows and, you know, family friendly shows and stuff. But it's totally bizarre. I mean, the, 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 to see yourself uh, portrayed uh, in all <laughs> of my, um, you know, kind of awkward, uh, uh, you know, weird uh, tween and teenage years is, is kind of weird. I will say the best the best experience I've had uh, with that show, not not just having seen myself as a character on there, but when he, when the last time I interfaced with the show, they had me and Mike, me, Mike, and Adam were, were best friends. We still are best friends. Um, they have me out to, um, he cast uh, Clancy Brown, mm. <laughs> the Kurgan, 
yes. from uh, <laughs> right. from the Highlander, which we were obsessed with that movie. He cast him as I think it was the science teacher. Uh, and then at the <laughs> end of the show, me and Mike actually interviewed for airing on the at the end of the sort of when the credits were rolling, got to interview. Clancy Brown about the Highlander because when we were in high school we had a we had a Highlander club. I mean we were really the coolest kids in the in the class. We were you know in high school we had a Highlander club. I mean you can really we were really I mean you know we were so popular. I mean we were like huge nerds. Yeah. Uh, but to get to interview like it was really funny because like like you know I've in my in my working life I've worked with politicians, famous people, whatever. But like when I got to meet like the Kurgan oh, yeah. from from the Highlander, it was like I'm I am genuinely now starstruck. And Clancy Brown was like sort of like it's kind of interesting to be around somebody who's starstruck by me. I mean, he's like a, you know, he's been in a lot of great movies, but he's, you know, he's, he's like a character actor, right? He's yes. not like a, you know, he's not like, you know, George Clooney or whatever. Right. But he, I, I think he kind of found it hilarious that, that me, Mike and Adam were like, no dude, you're like the coolest, like, this is like us meeting like a rock star. Like it was, <laughs> he, he found that entire thing hilarious, but look, you know, meeting the Kurgan, having yeah. been in a Highlander club. I mean, that's a, that's a life highlight, baby. I got to tell you, I'm so disappointed in my friends from elementary school. Not an Adam F. Goldberg, not a David Sirota, and the lousy bunch of them, all of them. All right. Well, hey, David, we are so grateful for your time today. Like I said, we were hoping to talk to you for so long now. And so uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, like we talked about earlier, you know, David confirmed, of course, he's an expert on this kind of thing. But the, the idea that pop culture unified us because of an apparent lack of choices in the 1980s was great when we were kids and, you know, provided a lot of opportunities for us to socialize, except for Cat. We learned a sad story mm. for Cat still. <laughs> but, you know, from David, we learned that sort of angle that there's still, there's been effects now for 30, 40 years of this 10-year period of time that we adore that has now influenced our peers who are in positions of power. And not only the folks that are making, you know, TV shows like Cobra Kai, <laughs> but are making decisions in the halls of government, you know, because they grew up with this, you know, uh, sort of philosophy and mentality that we were, I don't want to say indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, you know, conspiracy theory, borderline. But yeah, I mean, you know, uh, certainly, well, again, like David said, it wasn't some kind of evil plan by somebody, but you couldn't help but be exposed to it. Like Ray was saying earlier, like uh, helping but think that government was bad or scary. And E.T. E.T. is another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. remembered because I was scared <laughs> of them in that. That's right. All you saw was like their waist down. Uh, that's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. But that's the end of the show. So everybody, that's not the end. No, that's not the end of the show. <laughs> Why, does anyone else have any final thoughts about anything? I'm gonna cut Ray's mic off. Yeah, Kat, what, what, uh, and what, what's your final thought on this one? My favorite line from the Duke of Hazard. Yeah, I forget which one said it. Might have been Bo. Okay, Daisy, if you weren't my cousin, oh, I'd no. marry you. <laughs> no, <laughs> and you think I'm bad? Maybe she's telling us how the show influenced her. We need. need Let's to, think about that uh, as an influence. Yeah. We need to find out who Cat's husband is now, and maybe get a <laughs> genealogy thing. We're gonna need strings and <laughs> pins on the wall. But this is what I learned from David. Yeah, and it may seem weird and disjointed in a you know modern kind of way, but. We have proven no, that's not beyond it. a shadow of no, doubt. I'm going to play classical music, that but it's not going to help. Nancy Brown is the what? coolest guy oh, from the 80s. Oh, all right. can't oh, argue you with can't you. cut that out. Mm -mm. I realize this is the second week in a row that we talked about the Kurgan. Wow. So, yes. Right. Yeah. All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. See ya. Later. <laughs>